Hello, friends, and welcome to Into the Word, a radio and online program committed to reading, loving, and living the whole counsel of God. Lord willing, our intention is to go verse by verse and chapter by chapter through the entire Bible. Here to continue that journey is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. If you have your Bible with you, I'd love for you to open it now to Ezra chapter 1. Ezra and Nehemiah were originally a single book, and together they tell a story that covers a little more than 100 years. It's the story of Israel's return and restoration after the Babylonian exile. It may be helpful here to provide a brief overview of Old Testament history, beginning with the Exodus. The date of the Exodus is debated by historians, as is going to be the case for anything that far in the distant past. But we don't need to concern ourselves with that here. Some historians favor a date in the 15th century. Others favor a date in the 13th century BC. Regardless, we can fast forward from there and state with a fair amount of certainty that Israel was established as a significant regional power in the land of Canaan by the 10th century. That would be the time of the United Monarchy under David and Solomon. Now, of course, in the days of Rehoboam, Solomon's son, we have a division between the northern tribes and the southern tribes. The northern tribes under Jeroboam begin to drift very rapidly into idolatry. Jeroboam didn't want the people going on pilgrimage to the temple in Jerusalem in the south because he feared that doing so would generate sympathy in his own people toward the south, and that would cause his people to maintain a loyalty to the house of David that would not be helpful to him. So he set up alternative worship centers all across the north. The Levites, of course, were loyal to the temple, so they increasingly migrated south, and Jeroboam replaced them with priests of his own making. And so within a generation or two, the northern tribes have become essentially mixed and syncretistic in their worship. They were worshiping Yahweh in the ways and in the manner of the nations. And it was a short step from there to simply worshiping the gods of the nations. So when we get to the Ahab and Elijah stories in the ninth century, we see a country divided with the majority worshiping Baal, a Canaanite god worshiped all over the Middle East. Elijah represents the Yahweh faction. And though he has some spectacular moments, by and large, his reforms are not enduring. The northern tribes continue to limp between two opinions, to steal a phrase from the prophet, and to engage in disloyal and hateful pagan practices. As punishment, God summons a series of onslaughts and invasions from the Assyrian Empire to the north and east. They devastate Israel until finally only one heavily walled city, the city of Samaria, remains intact. All of northern Israel has been lost, her tribes scattered to the wind, except for this 20-acre compound on the hill of Samaria surrounded by 30-foot thick walls. 20 acres. That was the kingdom of Israel as ruled over by King Hosea. You can read about that in 2 Kings 17. For three years, that little mountain fortress held out against the mighty Assyrians. King Shalmaneser V died during the siege of Samaria, but it was taken up and completed by Sargon II, and the city fell to him and was destroyed by him in 722 BC. He boasts about it in his annals, saying, 
In the first year of my reign, I besieged and conquered Samaria. I led away into captivity 27,290 people who lived there, closed quote. So that was the end of the Northern Kingdom. Now, many faithful individuals from the Northern Kingdom had migrated down into the Southern Kingdom, the Kingdom of Judah, over the years. So the 10 tribes were never entirely lost, per se. But nevertheless, the total destruction and exile of the Northern Kingdom as a political entity was a huge blow to the people of God. The prophets pointed to it as a warning. If God is willing to punish those 10 tribes for idolatry and lack of faith, why would he not be willing to punish you also, they asked. And there was good reason and apparent need for those various warnings. The people in the southern kingdom of Judah were also prone to backsliding and idolatry. There were a few revivals and reformations that served to arrest most of their great seasons of decline, but the overall trajectory was toward entropy and decay. The people, however, by and large, were not alarmed. They were the remnant, after all. They were the true covenant community, they believed. They were the house of David, and they had the temple of God. Jeremiah, a prophet in the southern kingdom, rebuked them for their complacency and misplaced confidence. In Jeremiah 7.4, he warned them, saying, do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Do you think that God's going to spare you because you've rubbed up against the stones of the temple, he was asking them? That's superstition and nonsense. That's, that's not how God works. God looks at the heart. And when he looks at your heart, he sees all this idolatry and compromise. That's what the prophets were saying. But the people weren't listening even after God rescued them from the Assyrians in the days of Sennacherib, the son of Sargon II. Sennacherib had marched upon Judah and had subdued the entire country except for two fortified cities, Lachish and Jerusalem. It looked as though Judah would suffer the same fate as Israel, but then, in one of the greatest mysteries in ancient history, Sennacherib suddenly and quickly withdrew. He went back to Nineveh, where he was assassinated by his sons. Very shortly thereafter, his empire was defeated and destroyed by an alliance of competing powers. And so history wonders what in the world happened at the gates of Jerusalem. The Bible tells us that an angel of the Lord went out and killed 185,000 of Sennacherib's soldiers. Mass graves found from the time of the Assyrian invasion suggest that Sennacherib left Judah in a panic, barely even burying his dead. Now, you would think that a dramatic rescue like that would finally get the attention of the Jewish people, but it didn't. They made foolish alliances and fell back into idolatry. Meanwhile, the Babylonian Empire was a kingdom on the rise. Along with their allies, the Medes, they advanced upon Nineveh, the capital city of the Assyrian Empire, shortly after the death of Ashurbanipal, the grandson of the aforementioned Sennacherib. In 612 BC, after a brutal and bloody battle, the city fell and the empire with it. Nahum and Zephaniah had prophesied that very thing. But then it happened, and the world rejoiced, because Assyria had been a brutal master. 
The land of Canaan and the little country of Judah fell within the divided spoils allowed to Babylon, and she began to press her interests. Judah attempted to ally with Egypt to the west so as to ward them off, but to no avail. Babylon punished them for making that alliance with Egypt by taking a group of young Jewish nobles into captivity in 605 BC, including such notables as Daniel and his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. There were subsequent waves of deportation, one in 597 BC. You can read about that in 2 Kings 24. And then a third and final wave in 586 BC, which you can read about in 2 Kings 25. This last deportation followed the complete destruction of the city of Jerusalem and the temple of God. And all of this came about, according to the Bible, because of the idolatry and wickedness of the people, and particularly the idolatry and wickedness of the kings in the house of David. So, for example, 2 Kings 24, 3-4 says, Surely this came upon Judah at the command of the Lord to remove them out of his sight for the sins of Manasseh, according to all that he had done, and also for the innocent blood that he had shed. For he filled Jerusalem with innocent blood, and the Lord would not pardon. Quote. The exile was thus a complete shutdown and reboot of the covenant project. God pulled the plug and let them sit in the dark for 70 years. And then here in this story that we'll be looking at, he plugs them back in. A little light begins to flash on the monitor, and slowly but surely, the program begins to reboot. That's the story we'll be looking at. Over the course of these two books, Ezra and Nehemiah, we're going to observe three waves of return. Now, remember, there were three waves of deportation. So this is God undoing what he himself did. In the first wave, we will see a group of people under the leadership of Zerubbabel and Jeshua rebuilding the house of the Lord. That story will be told in the first six chapters of Ezra. Then in Ezra chapter 7, the story of the second wave of return is told. This time, the key character is a man named Ezra, and his focus will be on reestablishing the law. And then the final part of the story concerns the third wave of return under the leadership of a man named Nehemiah. His focus will be on rebuilding the wall. In terms of sources, historians have long recognized that the two primary sources for the story were the first-hand memoirs of both Ezra and Nehemiah. You will notice those sources because you will hear the shift from third-person to first-person narrative. So no effort is being made to obscure those sources. But obviously, someone later stitched those sources together along with historical materials from the first wave of returnees in order to create the finished product that we have before us now. This editor or compiler is often referred to as the chronicler. Whether he is the same person who wrote First and Second Chronicles is a matter of some debate, but as we will soon see, there is some kind of literary relationship between these various works. Now, as for the story itself, it covers a little more than 100 years of history, from 539 to 430 BC, and it teaches us a great deal about providence, grace, resilience, reformation, worship, teamwork, perseverance, and prayer. Hear now the word of the Lord. 
beginning at verse 1. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom, and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides freewill offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. So the chronicler here begins his story in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia. We probably need to stop and say a word about him because in our summary of Old Testament history, we left off with the empire of Babylon and the Babylonian exile. So who are these Persians and who is King Cyrus? Well, as you may recall from the book of Daniel and the end of the word series that we did on the book of Daniel, the Babylonian empire reached its zenith under the leadership of the great king Nebuchadnezzar. He features prominently in the stories contained in the book of Daniel. He died around 562 BC. He was succeeded by his son, Evil Merodach. You can read about him in 2 Kings 25, 27 to 30. He tried to undo a lot of what his father had done. And so his reign was characterized by a fair bit of chaos, which may explain why there were three kings of Babylon over a period of six years, two of which were assassinated. Nabonidus took the throne in 556 BC and is generally considered the last king of the Babylonian Empire. Nabonidus, though, was an interesting cat. He didn't really like being king. He wanted to be a priest, and he wanted to worship the god of his home region, and that made the priesthood in Babylon very nervous. So Nabonidus took early retirement, as it were, and went into a sort of self-imposed exile on an oasis in modern-day Saudi Arabia, so as to give himself full-time to the worship of the moon god Sin, that's capital S-I-N, moon god Sin. Nabonidus named his son Belshazzar his co-regent and left him in charge of the empire. Belshazzar is the king or co-king that we meet in Daniel chapter 5, the story of the writing on the wall. And, and that's why in that story, Belshazzar can only offer Daniel the third highest position in the land because Nabonidus had the highest position in the land and Belshazzar had the second highest position in the land. Regardless, it wasn't much of an offer anyway, because that story takes place on the last night of the Babylonian Empire. Just a few days before the story recorded in Daniel 5, King Nabonidus had come out of retirement to lead the army of Babylon in a great battle with Cyrus of Persia near Sippar, about 50 miles from the capital city. Nabonidus lost that battle in spectacular fashion, and now the empire lay open to the invading horde. That's why Belshazzar and his nobles are all getting hammered. They know that in just a matter of hours, their power and possibly their lives will come to an end. And that's exactly what happened. The city of Babylon fell to the Persians almost without resistance. In 539 BC, 
Babylon was absorbed into the Persian Empire, and King Cyrus found himself the most powerful person in the world. His empire encompassed all of Mesopotamia, most of the Middle East, the Eastern Mediterranean, and even parts of India. Now, Cyrus was a remarkably enlightened man relative to the times, and he issued a series of edicts like the one that we're seeing here in Ezra chapter 1, granting the right of return and freedom of religion to a number of subject peoples within the empire. Cyrus didn't want a capital full of angry exiles. He wanted people to go home and to build up their lands and their businesses and to pay taxes. He wanted a well-functioning, well-funded, peaceful empire filled with people who were praying for him to whatever gods they happened to worship. And so in 538 BC, Cyrus issued an edict permitting the Jews to return and to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. Now, according to verse 1, all of this took place that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. Obviously, there's a sense in which that refers back to Jeremiah 29.10. But most immediately, it refers back to 2 Chronicles 36.20-21. If you have your Bible open in front of you, just turn back one page, and all of this will make sense to you. 2 Chronicles 36, verses 20-21, is in the last section of the book of 2 Chronicles. This is what it says. He, the king of Babylon took into exile in Babylon those who had escaped from the sword, and they became servants to him and to his sons until the establishment of the kingdom of Persia to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths. All the days that it lay desolate, it kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. Closed quote. So there's your 70 years. Now, stay on that page in your Bible and look at verses 22 to 23 of 2 Chronicles 36. And what do you notice? They are almost verbatim the same words you have in Ezra chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. So, obviously, there is a connection between these two works. In fact, the book of Ezra in Hebrew begins with the word and which is a fairly common way of connecting things that are meant to be read together. The book of Exodus, for example, begins with the word and, indicating that it's supposed to be read after the book of Genesis. So the last paragraph in 2 Chronicles is the first paragraph in Ezra. Thus, we're being told that this is the next chapter in the story. The exile wasn't the end. It was a timeout. It was a punishment. It was a reboot. And now, by the grace of God, it's time to write the rest of this story. Praise the Lord. Notice, too, that all of these geopolitical realities are being ascribed to the providence of the Lord. Verse 1, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia. And the people who participated in the project were those, and we see this in verse 5, whose spirit God had stirred up to go to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. So the Lord is the one stirring the pot here. The Lord is moving Cyrus, and the Lord is moving individual Jewish people and families to be a part of this next great stage of the plan. Thanks be to God. Verse 5. 
Then rose up the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin, and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose spirit God had stirred up to go to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. And all who were about them aided them with vessels of silver, with gold, with goods, with beasts, and with costly wares, besides all that was freely offered. Cyrus the king also brought out the vessels of the house of the Lord that Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and placed in the house of his gods. Cyrus king of Persia brought these out in the charge of Mithridath the treasurer, who counted them out to Sheshbazar, the prince of Judah. And this was the number of them, 30 basins of gold, 1,000 basins of silver, 29 censers, 30 bowls of gold, 410 bowls of silver, and 1,000 other vessels. All the vessels of gold and of silver were 5,400. All these did Sheshbazar bring up when the exiles were brought up from Babylonia to Jerusalem. I think God must have a sense of humor. Isn't it interesting that on the night Babylon fell to the Persians, all the Babylonian nobles were getting drunk, drinking out of the vessels taken from the house of the Lord. Daniel 5, 1-4 says, King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought, that the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem. And the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Close quote. What arrogance, what blasphemy, and what irony. Because that very night, Babylon fell to the Persians, and in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, he issued an edict, and part of that edict clearly specified that all of those vessels last used by the drunken, blasphemous king and the drunken, blasphemous nobles of a doomed and dying culture should all be returned for safe passage back to Jerusalem. (laughs) So who gets the last laugh? now. And this is why you have to play the long game, brothers and sisters. The people of God are often down, but they are never out. Remember that. So there is irony here and a little bit of humor too, I think, and also some much needed reassurance. One of the main themes you're going to encounter in Ezra and Nehemiah is the theme of continuity. This is why there are so many genealogies and lists of names The author wants people to understand that the Jews living in Jerusalem now are the true and direct descendants of the Jews who lived there in ancient times. They are biologically related. They are liturgically related. They are the same people. This is the same covenant community. God put them on time out, but he never abandoned them. He refined them, but he never rejected them. The road may be long. And the journey may have many twists and turns, but in the end, the Lord will have what he wants, a people and a possession for himself. Thanks be to God. 
And thank you for listening to another episode of Into the Word. If you've appreciated the Into the Word ministry, I'd like to personally invite you to pay it forward by supporting one of our preferred mission partners. For the remainder of this year, we are highlighting the church planting ministry Mile One in St. John's, Newfoundland. Newfoundland is classified as an unreached population, with less than 2% of people identifying as evangelicals. Mile One Ministries is committed to helping healthy churches plant other Bible-believing, gospel-preaching churches. Here at End of the Word, I only promote ministries that I have firsthand on-the-ground experience with. Mile One is bearing fruit and is being led and stewarded by people that I know and trust. If you'd like to make a contribution to this important ministry, you can do that by visiting the Into the Word website at intotheword.ca. There are giving options there under the Give tab for both Canadian and American listeners. International listeners are welcome to give as well, though their gifts may not qualify for charitable receipts in their nation. Thank you for considering this method of showing your support for the End of the Word program. And may God alone be glorified. Your word is a lamp unto my feet.